This is the word of God, amen? amen? And don't you love Paul? It's awesome. May God write it on our hearts. That we might not sin against him. Yeah, that's right. We might not sin against him. I'll say he is risen, and then all of you say he is risen indeed. You ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Good job. Now, you may think, man, this guy's got his wires crossed holiday-wise. It's supposed to be about the virgin birth and the incarnation, not the resurrection. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you, we celebrate everything about the Son of God on every Lord's Day all year long. (laughs) I'm glad to hear some amens there. And the main thing you see in this passage, in this final testimony of Paul in Acts, is the power of the resurrection on full display in his life. I don't know if you noticed, but Paul cannot get over what Jesus has done. He can't get over it. He just can't. The idea is this. If you believe in Christ, you will testify about it. You will. So my question right at the bat this morning, are you? Church, are you testifying about Jesus Christ? When Jesus rose from the grave. Two women arrive first on the scene according to Matthew in his gospel. And he records the angel that is there at the empty tomb telling them two simple things in that whole chapter that we could sum up pretty simply. First, he challenged them to come and see. Come and see that this tomb is indeed empty. And then another thing we could say that they do is to, the angel says, to go and tell Go and tell the brothers to go meet at the mountain to worship him and to get instruction. Go and tell that he is not dead, that he is alive. Come and see, go and tell. It's the same for Paul. Paul has come and he has seen Jesus and now he must go and he must tell the world about him. It should be the same for us. Let's be real though. Sadly, some of us have begun to get over it, right? It's easy to kind of just start to get over what Jesus has done and as a consequence, not share it. I want to ask the question by introduction this morning, what stops us from going and telling regularly? What causes us the problem of forfeiting our excitement that God saved us and he can actually save others that we love and want to see him save. What challenges that? One thing that challenges it is forgetting, forgetting when we ourselves first came and we first saw and we first heard of the good news and believed It will be a longer introduction to do this, and I rarely do it, but I think it will help to put the invitation for this sermon on the front. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. That's going to be page 965 if you're using the Black Bibles, 965. Revelation chapter 2. Again, this is a longer introduction to do this, but I think it will help us to parse out this this, this book, uh, this chapter. Revelation 2 and verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'll quickly tell you, angel there is likely messenger. Uh, The word is messenger, and it's likely the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Written to him, Jesus is the him, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Ephesus is one of the seven churches that are being addressed in this chapter. It was a major church. Don't you remember? It wasn't but a few chapters ago in Acts 19 that we saw Paul spend three years in Ephesus. And so now John writes to them much later. Verse 2 through 3 and 6, I want you to see, he commends the church in Ephesus. Look what he says. I know your works, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6, more good things. Jesus said also to them, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Brother, sister, those verses tell us that this church was doing great in their sound doctrine. They were excelling in it. So much so, they even were refuting false teaching in that time that was leading people away, and they were doing it well. What an amazing, mature, growing group of church members they had in Ephesus. What a great commendation for Jesus to tell them as a church. If you don't believe it, go read the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus. It is a heady magnum opus of doctrinal theology. Go read it. Go read it. Ephesus is amazing in its doctrine. They were mature. They could digest such a letter. They are to be commended. But verse four and five, in the middle of the commendation is his admonition, calling them out. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Beloved church members of Redemption Baptist Church this morning, I want to ask you at the beginning of this sermon, I want to ask myself to evaluate your heart for a moment at the start of this passage that we study this morning in light of Revelation 2. The invitation is at the beginning of this one for you. If this hour is an equipping hour where Ephesians tells us that sound doctrine letter, that this is the hour where we come together for what? For building up and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. And brother and sister, let this be to you either a rebuke or a commendation as well. Ephesus must have thought that they had arrived, that they were solid, that they were planted. They had lost something to the effects, however, of their first works. Jesus calls through John's handwriting their first good works, and he tells them to walk in them again. Things like hope, unity, and most of all, love for one another and the lost. A witness, an original desire. My question at the beginning of this sermon this morning is, where are you at with this understanding? Have you lost your first love? Do you remember what it was like to not know Jesus and then to understand the gospel by faith and to have a treasure that you would never give up and that you couldn't stand the thought of keeping to yourself? Do you remember your first love? Failing to remember when Jesus first met you, when Jesus said, come and see the holes in my hands, come and know that the tomb is empty and then go and tell. Man, to, to lose that, failing to remember that. Today we follow the example of Paul to help us not do that. If we've done that, to remind us that it can come back. Because after 25 plus years Paul, in our text, still has his first love. He can't get over it. Here he is brimming with joy in chains. Here he is unashamed of who knows it, that Jesus is risen and he'll stand there and tell the whole known world, the Roman Empire and all their leaders, my God is alive. And if I would have my way, you would all believe it. How do we gain such power over our own testimony. Today, we make three observations of this text and of Paul's testimony to understand how we ourselves cannot lose our first love and maintain a faithful testimony like him. We're going to do so in these three observations. If you're taking notes, we're going to see the wickedness of sin. We're going to see the warmth of the sun, S-O-N, and the willingness of the sin, the wickedness of sin, the
the warmth of the sun, S-O-N, and the willingness of the scent. And I hope in the hope of capturing or recapturing our first love and never letting it go. The wickedness of sin. Paul's sinful present and past. You can go back to the book of Acts. You need to hold your place there. We won't leave it now in Acts 26. Let's start first with where are we at? Paul, and in this passage, the wickedness of sin, Paul's sinful present, like the present moment, is here, and his past is then mentioned. This is verses 1 through 12. Let's talk about the present. Look, in verse 1 through 2, the context is simple. This is Paul's last recorded defense in an official capacity as he is an official prisoner of the Roman government of the Roman government, and as he shares a testimony with King Agrippa, note verse one there, the present moment is filled with sinners. Not just sin, but sinners. Okay, Paul addresses in this moment the elite, the elite of Caesarea, the upper echelon rulers of this Roman city. Just like Jesus said, he and other disciples would Paul has been dragged before governors and kings, literally in this passage, for Jesus' sake. These are violent military leaders of Rome who are present. These are pagan ruling officials of Rome. There are sinfully opportunistic merchants and businessmen that are there, elites of the city, ready to hear. And most of all, a king. A king who will notoriously help exterminate his own Jewish brethren in service to Rome in the future of this moment. But right now, this present sinful moment needs to be understood if you're going to understand how to rightly testify. The wickedness of sin will always be in front of you when you choose to testify about who Jesus is. In Paul's instance, we have a very pointed scene when it comes to sin. Maybe we could argue the heinous, most nastiest version of Roman sin. For the current Caesar that gets appealed to in this passage is Nero. And they think, and we think as we study this passage, that this is the golden age of Nero, where for about four years, it just seemed like he ruled in an okay fashion. Something changed and he turned into a beast who would kill Christians. He was the most notorious, nastiest killer of Christians in all of the Roman empire. And, 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 and that's something. But for now, Agrippa, the king representing Nero, is this sinful audience. Simple point here. If you, brother, sister, today commit to sharing your first love, you need to understand it's going to be in similar sinful places at times. It's going to be costly. You need to understand that. And here's what you do. You talk about the other side of the wickedness of sin. And that's the second sub point here. Paul's sinful past. Verse 1 and 2 sets us up to see the sin that's present in the moment. Paul in 3 through 12 describes his testimony and he starts with his sinful past. (laughs) Paul begins his address and he goes straight to his life before Christ. What stands out about verses 3 through 12? There's a few things I want you to note. First, Paul lived as a Pharisee and everyone knows it, he says. You know, we learn in other texts of Scripture that this description that Paul gives here, it's actually pretty humble <laughs> because Paul was trained under, and likely early, maybe as a boy of 13, under Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous religious teachers of the day in the Jewish faith that Paul was growing up in. Paul will tell us in other writings that it was of the strictest party, the Pharisees, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he was top of his class when it came to knowing the Bible and the Old Testament. But get this, though Paul lived as a Pharisee and everyone knows it, he says, Paul in this moment is not consumed with glorifying his sinful past. You need to make note of that. And that's something that stands out to us first. Okay, second, Paul uses next a building crescendo in his rhetoric, okay, the way he speaks. He builds to make the main point of his entire story, also of his life before Christ, to make it 
the main point of his life before Christ. So in other words, when Paul sets out to explain that he was a sinner in need of Jesus to change his life, he builds even in that to the main point of his entire message, which is this. You remember it? He is risen. risen. The main point he's trying to make. Even when Paul talks about his gross sin, the resurrection is present. It's always there in his heart. In verses six through eight, he builds to the question, right? He builds to the question he has for any listener trying to understand his testimony. And that question stands out. Let's read it again. He asks, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That puts you back on your feet, doesn't it? You see how it stands out there naturally when you read it? He kind of leaves them with that for now. But you need to note that stands out. Okay, finally, what's another thing that stands out in verses 3 through 12 here? It stands out that Paul spends three more verses giving graphic detail of his sinful past. We need to note this, especially if we're going to be faithful in our witness. In its fullest expression, his sin led him to commit state-sponsored persecution and torture against Christians. You need to think about the categories I just described. It also led to him condoning the murder of believers, happily casting his vote. He confesses, and I imagine through some tears he's holding back, the scenes of him dragging Christians into the court of the Jews for torture in hopes to make them blaspheme Jesus. Notice Acts, Luke records it to try to make them blaspheme. Raging fury likely stands out to you. It should. In this moment, young Saul is in view, standing tall and proud as a star pupil holding on to the coats of his colleagues and the older Pharisees that were shed in anger so that they could properly throw the stones against Stephen and burst his skin open and kill him with stones. That's who we see here, Saul the Pharisee. Now, these things stand out to us as we study the text when we talk about the wickedness of sin and how it pertains to a right testimony, don't they? But what do the readers of Acts who read this, and maybe more pointedly, what do we today need to do with the information that's here in this first point in 3 through 12? I think of two immediate applications from this section before we move on. First, when you testify to your life before Jesus... You need to be real, raw, and uncut. Paul doesn't sugarcoat his sin. He's honest. He's honest. For some of you, this is going to be hard, or it is hard, because you're still ashamed of your sin before Christ saved you. You fail, maybe, to apply the hope of the atonement. Paul stands here outing himself because he rests in what he himself has written to the Corinthian church prior to this moment. God through him wrote 2 Corinthians 5 where he wrote and said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. When Paul stands there in Christ, he is able with a clear conscience to say, I was, I was horrible. I was the worst. A murderer. I was a murderer. Raging fury flowed from me all the time. But meanwhile, (laughs) meanwhile, God was working in me. The old has passed away, the new has come. If you are in Christ, truly trusting Jesus alone for your salvation, then you must be unashamed of the gospel in your life. It is the power of God that saved you out of the wretchedness that was your life. It will be the power of God that will keep you. It must then be the power of God to help you rightly and honestly articulate to people you would share with what he has done. Will you trust him in that? This is an application from this. Lost people will sniff out your inauthenticity quicker than you even realize. Go try to tell a lost person who's dying in their sin about your own sin and the hope you have of a savior and try to sugarcoat it and not be honest about what you're doing and watch them be very disoriented. 
Because you said you care about me, but you're not showing me how this has reached to the deepest, ugliest part of you, and yet you still trust in it. It's a good application. We should try to strive for earnest, honest confession, even when we share. We gotta be disciplined and honest and honesty in your testimony. Mark Dever writes, quote, if you are truly trusting in Christ, you can't confess a sin for which God has not provided forgiveness in Jesus. Indeed, if you work at the discipline of confessing your sin, it should not lead to despair at all, but rather to rejoicing over the extent of God's love to you in Christ, end quote. You see that? The summary there? Second application. When you testify to Jesus honestly, glorify Christ, not your sin. Paul speaks candidly and frankly about his nasty, dirty sin. That's true. But I can read it to my eight-year-old and not feel like I have glorified sin, right? You notice that? I mean, there's some evils involved in what he's done. But he doesn't go to where the imagination already wants to go in sin. He goes to the point of understanding that Jesus is greater. Some of you came out of such evils like Paul or worse your life before Jesus was, was just wretched, nasty, and broken by all the worldly standards. But those truly in Christ, they don't feel the need to go on and on and on about how bad they were because they were you know, consumed instead with how good he is. You know, that's Paul. The question is, will that be you? He does not glorify God to just try to drum up some continual you know, dwelling on what was your old sin. You need to get to Jesus, and you need to get there quickly when you share honestly. But sharing honestly gets us to Jesus. But I would say an application for this is, notice Paul's perfectly balanced in this as an example to you. Paul's glorying in Christ and not his sin is exactly what's used to transition him from his wretchedness to his conversion. So if you ask, where does my sin before Jesus have a place in me telling people about him? Use it to get to the next point naturally of, and do you know how I found hope in the midst of such darkness? Let me tell you about this Savior. That's where Paul goes next. Paul's first love, right? It comes through loud and clear, even though the wickedness of sin dominates this opening scene. You can envision first point, if the wickedness of sin freezes us, now we'll see point two, the warmth of the sun. S-O-N, it thaws us out. If your sin froze you, I mean, I don't know how to deal with my sin when it comes to telling people about Jesus, but you really have no Jesus, then let the warming, blinding light of Jesus' love be what you boast in. That's where Paul goes next. That's why I'm doing the play on words there. So your next point, note taker, the warmth of the sun, S-O-N, in that creative? Conversion, verses 13 through 18. Now, this is amazing to see. You know, think of the sun again, right? The sun in the sky is warm and bright. And then Paul just goes, like a blinding sun I encountered on the road to Damascus, Jesus, right? This is the portion of Paul's testimony when he met Jesus. This is the portion of Paul's testimony where he truly, gloriously was converted. Let's ask what stands out to us here in verses 13 through 18 concerning Paul's conversion. First, notice his conversion was personal, not general. It was personal, not general. In verses 13 through 15, Paul recalls the conversation with Jesus. He recalls it on a personal level. We know from studying other texts that although the people traveling with him, they heard a sound like thunder, they didn't actually know the conversation, what was going on. Paul was intentionally having a private meeting. Now, this was to show him, without a doubt, that despite his great wickedness that he had been in, and get this, notice in your text, there's this weird thing about kicking against goads. Like, what's that about, right? Well, when you have like cattle or you have, you know, stubborn animals, we use this thing called an electric prod, you know, there's electricity and we zap them and then they get going. Well, back in the day, it was just a sharp stick, you know, real sharp and you'd poke them in the honey, right? 
And that poke lets them know, Ooh, I got I to gotta get to plow in the field, right? And Paul lets us in on the personal level here of the, his conversion. Not only was the wickedness of sin something he was swimming in, not caring about Jesus, but when he stoned Stephen and watched that happen, part of him said, this ain't right. And his love for sin said, it's fine, suppress. And when he went to the synagogue and dragged believers there, sure, he probably finished the task in sin, but his conscience bothered him. Saul, Saul, why is it hard for you to kick against the goats? Why are you kicking back all the time? His great wickedness, his wickedness continuing to ignore the wonderful gift of a sensitive conscience. I mean, you realize that? Unregenerate Saul is sensitive to doing his wrong deeds. If that don't give you hope to stand before anybody who says they love sin and Jesus isn't real, you found it, buddy. You can believe when you testify that even a lost person, they know. They're suppressing something that is the starting place for us to witness to them about Jesus. And so this great wickedness, this ignoring, this wonderful gift of a sensitive conscience, and despite all that, Jesus will have his life. I want you to notice that. Notice in this text, Paul didn't choose Christ. Christ chose Paul. Paul didn't ask Jesus into his heart. Jesus showed Paul his ugly heart and then gave him a new one. That's huge. Paul learns firsthand from Christ that his sin, like all sin, is against God chiefly. God doesn't come to him and say, I'm here because of the people you're torturing in the synagogues. I'm here because of the people in Damascus. I'm here because of Stephen. No, no, no. Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Your sin is not against my church. It's against me. You know the Pharisee, Paul, had memorized Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. Psalm 51 is written... When David, the man after God's own heart, has cheated on his wife with another man's wife, he's got her pregnant. He had her husband killed. The baby was born. The baby died. David covered it up, making himself look like a hero when he married this woman that he had committed adultery with. Caught in a lie for months, David's sin festered in his heart. He was sick. Psalm 51 has a title that says, when the prophet Nathan had come to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. I mean, there's not a more explicit example of a man that is living deceived in his sin and in need of the truth. God sends the prophet Nathan. And what is the confession that comes out of David's mouth? It should be, God, against Bathsheba, I have sinned. And against Uriah, I have sinned. And against the nation of Israel, you called me to lead. I have sinned. God, I have sinned against so many people. But that's not what David says. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's the moment Paul's having. Paul realizes in his conversion, it was personal, not general. It was personal. And he testifies to that. Second, notice his conversion was predestined, not guesswork. Okay? You know, it was personal. It was not general. It was also predestined. It was not guesswork. In verses 16 through 18, Paul reports by direct quote the words of Jesus to him. You need to note that. 16 through 18 is Jesus. <laughs> The contrast to Paul's great wickedness, which was his responsibility, right? the contrast is provided from none other than God himself. So Paul's testifying that Jesus himself is the one who shows up to Paul and shows off his great sovereignty, not the other way around. Paul thought he was touting the sovereignty of God in his going to hurt Christians. Jesus showed up with the real sovereign power and declared it. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. It's like, I didn't have a choice in this. Like, I can't explain what happened to me apart from telling you that it was nothing about me. <laughs> it was everything about him changing me. This contrast is huge. For by grace, through faith, Paul was saved in this moment. And it was for the good works prepared beforehand by God that he should walk in. You see, the foreknowledge of God dominates the conversion narrative of Paul. 
Okay? Now, it's not to offend the listeners that he's talking to. It's not to offend the future leaders or readers, excuse me, readers of Acts that would receive this letter. And hear me, brother, sister, today. It's not to offend you. Right? The, the foreknowledge of God really all over this moment of Paul's conversion is not to offend you. It's to show you how big and glorious the invitation to be converted by God actually is. It's to whet the appetite of your dry and parched soul that wants everything except living water. And it's to set before you, Agrippa, to set before you, reader of Acts, to set before you, Redemption Baptist Church, to set before you, a lost soul maybe here today, this really big God had a really big plan. And the moment he decided to lay it out was when he was converting the most unlikely convert, one person. God's electing love on one person in that moment. And that's when God pours verses 16 through 18 out to show to King Agrippa, to show all of us who are maybe trying to hustle the conversation here. Notice at the moment of conversion is when Jesus is speaking about the powerful work that he will work in the future with Paul. Why? Because the gospel is most clearly articulated. I love this. Look, some people, they they reject the mysterious nature of God's sovereignty, and they do so with this claim. They say that such thoughts make things less clear, but scripture shows the exact opposite. When God is calling, when God is electing, when he does what he does in saving in scripture, the gospel is always the clearest right beside it. You could go all over the place. Go to Abraham, go to Genesis 15, go to the call of a man who stood in the stars and saw by faith and believed. You will have 400 years of history you got to deal with in that passage where God lays out his redemptive plan, showing you I'm God over 400 years worth of exile. I'm a God who's raising up out of Israel, through an exodus, a people. He's going to keep doing that. The greatest moments of clarity of, oh man, God loves this person and he set his heart, he set everything on them by his own volition and nothing in them. Then comes the teaching of God. And that's how this is modeled here, I think. Look at verse 18. Is verse 18 not the clearest gospel message you could ever hear in the middle of a man's testimony? Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18, blind eyes. What is Paul going to do? What, what is Jesus telling him at his conversion? He's going to open their eyes. That's implying that they are blinded in their sin. Sin. To do what? To turn from darkness to light. That's called repentance, beloved, right? From Satan to God, that's a new identity and a new life. To receive forgiveness, that's atonement and assurance for living a holy life right now. And for them to have what? A place among the sanctified? That's the hope of eternal life to come. By faith, that's the only way we are saved. You see what I'm saying? In one moment, a divine foreknowledge where God says, Saul is mine. He's mine. So comes the clearest way to understand how you can be saved. How can you be saved today? You can pray to God and say, God, I have blind eyes that love sin. I repent of my sin. Give me a new identity and a new life. Lord, apply your atonement to me. Give me assurance so that I can live a holy life, keeping your commands for the hope of eternal life that awaits for me because it's by faith that I'm saved. You can get all that from verse 18. How? The clarity. His conversion is predestined clearly. It's not guesswork. It's not guesswork. Now, these are the things that stand out to us as readers. How do we apply them? I've already been applying them a little bit, but let's apply them some more. First, when you testify of Jesus converting you, let it be about Jesus, not you. This is huge. Check the pronouns of your testimony next time you tell someone about Jesus. Check the pronouns. If your testimony is about how you did this and you did that and you prayed this and then you responded in this way with you, me, and we, you may be failing to give credit where credit is really due. What's more attractive to someone? You saving them or God saving them? You know it, beloved. You know it's God. But, but, but it's a good takeaway here. If Jesus is not the hero of your testimony, it's not a biblical testimony. If Jesus isn't at the center of your conversion, you may not be converted at all. At least so we should think. 
Paul met Jesus and was changed. And that's the end all be all for him. So let it be ours. Second, here's another application. When you testify of Jesus converting you, share the gospel clearly. If you share your testimony with someone in three minutes, like Paul does here, I always tell, we use this passage in our discipleship because you can set a timer and read this. And in three minutes, you've got a full example of a testimony. And if you are sharing your testimony in three minutes, like Paul, and you don't include how someone can be saved like he did, you failed. Think about that. Maybe, maybe make homework from today's sermon. Hearing this read, you can see how someone who doesn't believe like Paul could believe. Can you not? Don't you see how, you know, how he talks about his conversion in this way? I want to ask you, do you do that? If you don't, when you share about Jesus, if you don't do so, you know, speak of your conversion in this way so that you have opportunity to actually teach the gospel, then don't be surprised when you feel like you have so many, like so little opportunities to witness. Paul is thinking intentionally here. If you only talk about what God has done for you and you never spin it boldly to what God can do for them, then you are not authentic in your witness. In other words, keeping the glory of the gospel for yourself for whatever reason, fear of offending someone, you know, or whatever it is, is not loving. Paul's example here is the opposite. We need to apply it. Paul intentionally includes the stumbling block of Jesus and hope of tripping up his hearers. He knows he's throwing a cog in the Roman war machine when he throws out there, Jesus is the Lord of all. And he rose from the grave. And would you convert me to be a Christian, Paul, in a short time? Yes. <laughs> yes, Agrippa, and all of you. Now, what do you, man, I mean, that's, a, that's bold, but listen, I want you to see, you can do it. An application here is just evaluate your testimony today in light of this example. When you share your testimony, fit something else in there alongside of it, maybe like a scripture, that then challenges your hearer. Finally, there's no clearer time in our text for me to call anybody here that is not a Christian to the attention of Jesus in this section. There's not a clearer time for me to tell you if you're here today that you haven't put all your trust and your faith in Jesus and you don't know him as Lord of your life. You haven't trusted him for salvation than to repent of your sin and to do so today. This is the moment where Paul repented and believed that he's testifying about. Does your story do those things regularly? If you're here today and you want to visit more about that, please find me or Blake afterwards. We want to talk to you. So amidst the chilling wickedness of sin comes the warmth of the sun that converts Paul. And that leads us to our final point, the willingness of the sent. S-E-N-T, the sent, those who are sent. There's a willingness here. Paul is a sent one, like all who believe in Jesus Christ. All of us are sent ones. Paul shows his willingness to Agrippa and to everyone present in verses 19 through the end of our passage. Now, what stands out in these verses? I want you to observe with me some things, okay? Observe with me that Paul's testimony of how he lived after his conversion is still centered on Jesus, okay? In his past, in the present moment, and when he's mocked and questioned, okay? So first, look what, you know, he's still centered on Jesus after his conversion in his past. So verses 19 through 20, Paul speaks of his obedience, Right? Yes, he speaks of his obedience, but it is in reference to God using his obedience to bring the gift of repentance and faith to others in his work over the years. Beloved, these two verses, 19 and 20 in your passage there, you got to understand all that we have studied in Acts 12 until now is in view in these two verses. That's 25 plus years of gospel ministry that Paul brings up only to talk about the faithfulness and the fruit that God provided. Notice, he doesn't go into a list of all the churches he's planted. He doesn't go into a list of all the accomplishments that he's seen done. He doesn't take the time here to list off all the beatings and things that the church and him have endured. What does he do? His standard is Jesus' work in the past, not his accomplishments from the past. Do you see that? Next, look at the present moment, verses 21 through 24. Paul speaks of his current trial. He says how he got there. 
Notice, though, it is in reference to God using this trial to prop up the message of the resurrection. His accusers would disagree. It ain't about the resurrection. It's about these other issues. The Romans hope to disagree so they can find a good reason to, when they send him to Caesar. But listen, this is what you got to see. Paul stands firm in the paradoxical truth that the greatest offense to a dying humanity who loves death, the greatest offense is that we killed the one who could give us life. And I say a paradox because Paul wants them to know that here's what's amazing. When given good things, you kill them, humanity. You, you fail them, right? I mean, you fail when given life. And when the giver of life comes, you kill him. And he's dead. And is it thought a miracle to any of you that God raises from the dead? You need to consider this. Now he's picking back up. And what is he getting at? What anchors him? The reality that Jesus didn't stay dead. Again, it's the resurrection. He is risen. It's true. And for Paul, he can't get over it. When he reflects on 25 plus years of ministry, when he reflects on why he's on trial there, in the present moment, it's still all about Jesus who got up out of the grave. This guy has one song. He's dogged, he's unshaken, and he's bold. Even when he receives mocking and questioning. Notice the rest of the text, 24 and 26. We got this interruption of Festus. Clearly, for, for Festus's poor Roman brain, it was not, it was just, it was just like, he's a crazy person. <laughs> this guy's a Jesus freak. And he literally bursts out loud, interrupts Paul, the text tells us. Paul, all your studying has made you out of your mind. You were out of your mind. Paul doesn't miss a beat, does he? No, Festus. I'm not out of my mind. I'm being rational and I'm being true. I will argue it from every angle you need me to argue it from. I'll show you, Jew. I'll become a Jew to you. And I'll show you from the Jewish understanding that Jesus is Christ and he rose from the grave. Roman, I love you. I will, I will be as to you like a Roman so as I can show you that through the Roman road, we get to Jesus still and he's risen from the dead. I'm not bothered by your mockery. I'm telling you, he rose. And Agrippa, I'm telling you, right? It's like verse 20, you know, uh, verse 28. And before that, 27, 28, he shows his willingness as a sent one in this moment in the strongest sense, right? He's asking the king, King Agrippa, I know you have Jewish background and I know you're a Roman leader and I know you believe the prophets. I know you do. What? Like that's bold. A bold statement that brings an honest question. Verse 28. You can see it almost in your mind's eye. Agrippa says to Paul, and we don't know. We don't know if he's offended. We don't know if he's actually interested. We don't get his emotions. We don't get commentary on that. So we shouldn't try to you know, get into all of that. But he at least asks a question, doesn't he? He recognizes what Paul has said. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What do Christians believe? They believe Jesus rose from the grave. Paul's message has been received. What he set out to do to testify that Jesus is risen, he's risen indeed, has happened. When Agrippa looks at him and says, you would have me be a Christian? Or would you have me be a Christian? Or... It doesn't matter how the response comes. The idea that Luke is preserving is one, Paul's innocent. Two, in his innocence, he will blare the trumpet of resurrection until God himself blares the trumpet of resurrection and raises everybody up, naysayer or not. And they will know. They will know what a Christian believes. Paul keeps it about Jesus. Brilliant, honest, sincere, and bold. Do you see the willingness of a sent person on display in Paul? I hope you do. Here's a quick note, and then we'll apply and be done. This text, like the ones before it and after it, they're focusing us on Paul's innocence. Paul's innocence through the last chapters. I mean, everybody's been saying the dude's innocent. He's innocent of this. They find no guilt in him. They send him on. Oh, I can't find anything wrong with him after two years, but I'm gonna keep him in prison to do a favor. But even I can't still find Festus anything wrong with him. And so I'll bring in Agrippa. And at the conclusion of this, this man has done nothing wrong worthy of death. And if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, so what's going on? Well, alongside that, you need to know that Paul's innocence is in view 
and what happens in the heart of the people that Paul is sharing with, we don't understand. Okay? We don't know if any of them believe. I mean, we can even study history and see some of them probably didn't. Agrippa likely goes on to not believe. I mean, based on his choices after this, I mean, he is an assistant to Nero. And he becomes more powerful, given more land under his rule when he does horrible things with Christians. But why am I bringing that up before we apply? Well, the point is, is that Paul's faithful. He's faithful. And sometimes we, we evaluate our lives, and though we say, I need to be faithful, what we really mean in a condemning fashion is, I better be fruitful. Sometimes we as Christians hold ourselves to the standard of, it's up to me. It's up to me to see this church grow. It's up to me to be a husband that loves his wife like Christ of the church. It's up to me to be the greatest Christian in my current field of employment. We count fruit as faithfulness instead of realizing that the whole example of the end of Acts, when churches are being, they're exploding all over the known Roman world. We just, we stopped back in 1920. We don't get to see that anymore. We get all these chapters of one person doing his best to have a clear conscience before God and be faithful to the end. This book will end disappointingly. You will not get a final recap of like, look how much now another number like he was giving us in the beginning. Now there's 65,000 million Christians, right? You don't get that. The book's going to end and it's just Paul. Two more years of faithfulness, silent disappearing. (laughs) Because that's your life. That's my life. That's the Christian life. So how do we apply faithfulness in this last point? How do we be willing servants sent by God? Some of us are not up to testifying because we doubt our testimony isn't good enough for whatever reason. Some of you would say that you were too sinful or that you remain too full of struggles in order to be used by God like Paul. I want to tell you this is a lie. This is a lie. And if you continue in such a train of thought, you will ultimately reach a place where you deny God's ability to save you fully. Now, if I just shared that with you and you think, I don't share my testimony because it's not, you know, I'm too sinful, I'm too dirty, and I struggle to be bold, listen to me, that's where that lie ends in. And if that terrifies you, good, because if you're truly in Christ, you will not dare to go there, right? So what should you do? Stop the train and repent. Repent. Share boldly as one who's made new. Yes, you're the worst. I'm the worst. God loves worms. (laughs) He loves wretches, right? He loves people that have ruined their whole lives, but they at least know one thing. He loves them and he set his love upon them in Christ. So go and declare the resurrection. But more commonly, some say that they don't have a sinful enough testimony. You know, I hear this all the time. My story's boring. You compare me to the murderer Paul, the adulterer David, that's not worth sharing. That's such a lie. Here's why it's a lie as well. The smallest sin deserves entire separation from God in hell. It deserves eternal punishment. And he saved you from that. So point one, get your theology right. God saved you from your self-righteousness. God saved you from your respectable sins. God saved you from those when he deemed them enough to separate you from him forever. Secondly, would you want your kids, real or hypothetical, to learn of grace through such devastation? You would never want that for another person. You would never want that for your own offspring. You would want them to grow up hearing that Jesus rose from the grave, hearing that they can trust Jesus with their whole life. And then one day saying, you know, I always knew that. And then God firmed it up in me and I followed him and I've not looked back. That's beautiful. And if that's your story, share it. Share it boldly. Pray that it would be others' stories. Because here's the thing. Praise God for his faithfulness to keep you from such evils maybe, right? Because what he did is, is he let you not fall into the grossest of sins, sure. But you also need to realize the opposite end of that is he kept you from being a self-righteous jerk. Have you ever met people that don't think they're sinners, but let's say they love God? Well, I think they do more damage, don't they? 
Thirdly, learn from Paul. That's our final application here. If you doubt your testimony, learn from Paul. I'm glad Paul didn't doubt his testimony when he could have way more than me and you. I want you to envision this, okay? For Paul, it was one, one poor crippled from beatings, possibly blind, we learn from other passages, older Jewish man versus maybe 50 of the most powerful influencers, beautiful, strong leaders of the Roman Empire. You know, church history reports that Paul was, quote, a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting, that's called a unibrow, and nose somewhat hooked. That's what church history says. In other words, ugly. (laughs) And then it continues, full of friendliness. For now, he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel, end quote. That's a letter of Onesiphorus from the early first century. Hear me out. You may be ugly. <laughs> you may be ugly to look at, and you may be ugly to listen to, and, and all the ugly, okay? God loves ugly. He loves it. He takes broken pieces, and he makes things awesome. Why? The resurrection. One day you won't be crooked. <laughs> I mean, you won't. One day, one day you won't be bent and weird. One day you won't be awkward, right? One day you won't feel the pressure of your brokenness and your ruined life. One day, when God resurrects us all, you'll be like him. Until then, will you remember him? Will you remember your first love? You're probably saying, that's just Paul. Come on, I could never do that. Listen, such boldness really is inexplicable. Sometimes. There's moments where God's gonna call you to testify. And I'm not talking about years from now. I'm talking about this week. I'm talking about next week. I'm talking about today. I'm saying God may call you to testify and you may feel the pressure of the situation. But just like we're about to, you know, from a reason, sober mind, do what Jesus said. Jesus said, as regularly as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Take what represents my blood. Take what represents my body. Eat those things by faith. Let your palate remember what your heart knows by faith to be true. I died and rose again. Just like we do that on a discipline level, and we know it because Jesus said it, I want to leave you with Matthew 10. When you testify, think of this. Jesus said, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Will you remember your first love and then leave it to the Lord and testify? Will we do that as a church? I hope so. Let me pray for us. And then Blake's going to come. We're going to sing. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together after we pray a prayer of confession. Okay, let's, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your revealed word and for the hope it gives us for the story that we have, the testimony you've given us, Lord. God, we pray that you would make us bold like Paul, that you'd make us believe in the resurrection like he did, that you would help us, God, to look for opportunities to weave boldness into our story when we meet strangers or we meet friends or we talk to our family. Help us, God, to be ready like he was ready, to give a defense for what we believe. Lord, in doing that, we know that this is first works kind of love. This is a remembering what we once had, being bold and sharing it. God, make us foolish for Jesus. Help us to be absolutely committed to letting every person we see know who our first love was. It's you, Lord, and they can know him. Until we are dogmatic about this, God, keep reminders before us like today's sermon. Keep friends in our lives that challenge us. Keep examples in our lives that pastor us. Lord, keep, keep your word centered in our lives. It constantly calls us to this. There's no higher calling we have than getting to tell the world about you. Help us to value that above everything else. Father, it's for your glory that we prioritize this. In Jesus' name, amen.